Good morning, church. I'm very grateful to our communications team for uh, making technology available for me to preach to you from my home study. And I'm going to ask you, please, to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14, verses 15 to the end of the chapter. When we left off in our study of the book of Exodus, we we left the Egyptians, or we left the Israelites between the Egyptians and the deep Red Sea. And now we're going to watch God deliver them miraculously, despite their little faith and despite Moses' little faith. God truly delivers them in such a way that he gets a name for himself. That's the way God works. That's the way God worked in the Old Testament. It's the way God works in the New Testament. He said, by our weakness, he will show himself to be strong. Through our suffering, he will cause the faith that he puts in us to come forth shining as gold. And it's the way he is working in us now. So look with me at God's word, Exodus chapter 14, verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh, that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. The people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. 
Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, please send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see the gospel, the good news of your salvation being revealed to us in this passage from Exodus. And help us not only to see it and understand it, but cause us by your Spirit to believe it, to expect great things from God and to attempt great things for God. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, in my prayer there, I just announced the outline of my sermon. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. I didn't come up with that outline. William Carey did. William Carey is, is known as the father of modern missions. He lived in the, in the 1790s. And uh, he grew up in Northampton, England, he was a cobbler. He was a shoe repairman. But the Lord called him to himself, and the Lord called him to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, we've seen him do that to a number, for a number of our friends. Seen him, we're, we're accustomed to, to God calling people to foreign missions, but this was a very unusual thing in Carey's day. Kerry was a Calvinist. He believed that God was sovereign over all things. That's the church he was in. And, and, and yet that Calvinism had, had gone to seed. It had become hyper-Calvinism to the point that, that uh, people thought that, that it was actually wrong to share the gospel, that, that God was the one who did the saving. And Kerry didn't believe that. Kerry knew from scripture that God uses us and, and gives us the joy of sharing in the ingathering of his harvest by sharing the gospel and bringing people to Christ. So he started studying how many people around the world needed Jesus, and he found that there were 550 million people who had never heard the name of Jesus Christ, and, and, and many of them lived in India. And so he believed that, that God wanted those people to hear the gospel and and uh, he thought that that uh, he and his fellow Englishmen who knew Christ should be the ones to go and so he preached this sermon he used as his text Isaiah 54 uh, first several verses from 1, 1 through 4 and and uh, he, he preached from that text uh, that 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 we should expect great things from God. God is sovereign and he's he's unlimited and and when we expect great things from God, we will attempt great things from God. Well, he wasn't that sermon didn't get a lot of get a warm reception initially, especially from a man named John Ryland Sr. John Ryland Sr. said, "Sit down, young man. If God wants to reach the heathen of this world, he'll do it without." 
the cooperation of you and me. John Ryland eventually changed his tune and became one of William Carey's uh, most ardent supporters. And Carey did answer the call to foreign missions and he went to India and preached the gospel. He, he paid a great price. His children died. His wife lost her mind. Uh, but after many, many years of, of laboring without any, without any fruit at first, the Lord raised up 1,500 converts, translated the scriptures initially into Bengali and then, and then in 39 other languages. By the time Carrie died, there were, there were those converts I mentioned and, and churches planted and, and colleges and schools begun. He even began a, even founded a botanical garden and an aviary because he believed that God's sovereign grace meant that the gospel also brings beauty and flourishing to all things. Well, uh, many, many years after that, when I was a pastor in St. Louis, a, a new couple, a new family showed up in our church. They were Indian, and they had come from India to uh, St. Louis uh, to be research scientists, and they were having trouble finding a church at first because because they weren't used to denominations. They were from South India, and they only knew the Christian church. And they were looking, their only criteria for, criterion for, 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 uh, for finding an acceptable church was whether or not the church taught the scriptures. They loved the Bible. So we had them over to lunch and Jackie and I asked them about their, their, their faith and their testimony. And they, they said that they had, they were, they were the fourth generation of Christians in their family. And I said, well, do you know anything in the history of, of missions? Do you know who brought the gospel initially to your area? No. Do you know who translated the Bible? We don't know. I said, may I look at your Bible? Of course, I couldn't read their Hindi translation, but I saw in the flyleaf of the Bible this name that I could, that I could decipher, William Carey. 200 years later, that man's life was bearing fruit. 200 years later, this Indian family held in their hand a copy of the scriptures translated by William Carey. That long-term impact of, of a man's life, the long-term impact of a man's sacrificial love all began with a man who expected great things from God. It began with God revealing himself to him in, in, a, in a saving way and convincing him, if I can save you, William Carey, I can do great things through you. And I can save the nations of the world. And I can use your humble life. I can multiply the impact of your humble life for centuries. 
Isn't that the way we want to live through this current struggle while it begins? It begins by getting God squarely before our eyes. That's what had to happen with the, had to happen with the with the Israelites. They had to learn to expect great things from God. They had to learn to continue to expect great things from God. They had seen the ten plagues. They had seen their liberation from Egypt. But God continually had to reveal himself in power to his people, which is what he has to do for us as well. I want you to think about how God reveals himself in this passage as the sovereign God. For one, he, he reveals himself to be sovereign over over hearts and then we'll see him to be to reveal himself as sovereign over false gods and sovereign over creation and and when you recognize the sovereignty of god well you come to expect great things from him but but maybe you're already feeling some anxiety thinking how is this going to happen to me do i do i have to do i have to work up this faith i'm telling you if you're united to christ And becoming united to Christ is just this simple. Lord Jesus, save me. Lord Jesus, take me to yourself. Lord Jesus, help me. And when the Lord Jesus unites you to himself, this is what happens. Your life follows the same pattern as his. And and this is what the Spirit did in the life of Jesus. The, The Spirit led Jesus into difficulties, into, into, into trying difficulties, and ultimately the crucifixion and death in order that God's powerful salvation might be made manifest. Think about, think about how Jesus, how the Spirit led Jesus. Soon after he was born, uh, Jesus was carried by Mary and Joseph to Egypt. And Matthew tells us, Matthew chapter 2 tells us that 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 was to fulfill the prophecy, out of Egypt I will bring my son. Well, well, that prophecy was not just about bringing Jesus back to the Holy Land from Egypt. That prophecy indicated that it it was God who brought his son, Israel, out of Egypt. And the reason Jesus is making that trek again by the Spirit's leading and coordination is that Jesus is unmasking himself as the one who led Israel out of Egypt. We know that. We've seen that already. In Jude verse 5, Jesus led his people out of, out of Egypt. Jesus is with his people. He, he, the Spirit led him out of Egypt in order to unmask him. And then the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. The Spirit led him through his whole life to live the life of righteousness in our place. The Spirit led him to the cross. And the Spirit raised him to life. And your life being hidden in Christ, your life being united to Christ, is following that same pattern. You are being proven as a Christ follower. And so when you cling to Christ, you will come to expect great things from God. 
Jesus will see to it. He will force you to it. Just as he walked his own life of faith on this earth, he is walking that life of faith through you. And as he walks it through you, as he leads you, he will cause you to see these things. These three things he will cause you to see that God is sovereign over hearts. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me for this point. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. We've seen that language before. God hardening the heart of Pharaoh or Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And we said at the time we studied that, that the hardening of a heart is God's allowing uh, a sinner to make his own choices. To, 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 he, he, is, he is demanding to be in charge of his life. He is demanding to be sovereign. And so God says, have your way. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so God says, you say there is no God? I'm going to allow you to harden your heart against me and choose that way. And in the end, if you do not repent, it will be proven to you and through you that I am the sovereign God. Now this was this was a direct attack on the theology of, of Egypt because the Egyptians taught that that Pharaoh was in charge, that, that, that the Pharaoh ruled the universe with his heart. And it was only hardened, that is, it was only made unable to rule the universe when he died, when he was mummified, and the next Pharaoh uh, came to power. And that Pharaoh took over the living heart that would, that would rule the universe. And God is saying to Pharaoh then, and he was saying to these Egyptians now, you don't rule anything. And you certainly don't, you don't even control your heart. That uh, that unless I save you, you will continue to choose foolish things against me. So God gives them over to it. And then he, and then he, 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 he objectifies. He makes, he gives, he makes an object lesson of their chariots. He, he uses their chariots to, to show externally what he's doing internally. The Hebrew is vivid here. It's, it's literal. It says, God removed the wheels of their chariots. Now we have this interpretive translation here that they, their, their chariot wheels clogged up or, and we imagine that they got mired in the, in the mud and, and, and whatnot. But, but, but that same area was dry for, for Israel, why would it be muddy for them? Why not just take it the way it was written originally? God removed the wheels. God tore the wheels off of the chariots. These, the, the Israelites didn't have chariots. They didn't have horsemen. This was a terrifying uh, weapon of war. And, 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 and Pharaoh was especially proud of his chariots. He had thousands of them. God removed the wheels. And then literally it says, when he removed the wheels, it caused the chariots to ride 
heavily, caused them to ride heavily, caused them to, he caused them to, to be, they were, they were weighed down. The word heavy is kavod. It's, it, it can be, it can mean hard. It's the same word used for the hardening of their hearts. God demonstrated his sovereignty over hearts. Here's the first point I want you to get, and that is that we must not fret evil people. In a time of crisis, it's easy to be afraid. It's easy to be afraid of all kinds of things, and especially of bad people. Bad people uh, looting stores, and bad people taking advantage of us politically, or bad people taking advantage of us economically, or bad people taking advantage of us, bad people hurting us, breaking in, stealing things. And it's, it's certainly God gives a leash to evil, but ultimately God is in control. God is in control of human hearts. And God is controlling them to bring praise to his glorious grace, even when they, he, they are allowed to act out on their evil. We may be comforted with the assurance that God is ultimately, God will ultimately cause those evil actions to redound to his glory and serve our eternal good. Second point I want you to see is that God is sovereign over false gods. God makes a mockery of the gods of Egypt just like he did in the plagues. Remember each time we studied a plague, we said, you know, this this relates to a particular god in the Egyptian pantheon. We studied the plague of the frogs. We said they had a, a fertility goddess who was in the who had the image of a frog. And God said, you believe that that uh, the, the frog goddess uh, gives fertility? Well, I'm going, to, I'm going to make her especially fertile in the production of frogs. God mocked the supposed gods of the Egyptians. Of course, none of those gods was real. They were, they were only... Uh, demons. They were only deceiving spirits. God showed himself to be the one true God. He continues to do it here. In verse 24, I want you to notice the text reads, and in the morning, in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. Now, why does he mention that it was during the morning watch? Because we we studied this in the in the plague of darkness, they they worshipped the god Ra, R A Ra, who was the sun god. And every day when the morning when the when the sun came up, they said it was it was Ra, awakening for the day. And when it went down at night, he he was going to sleep. And they gave praise to the god Ra, for the sun that kept them alive. That that created photosynthesis and gave fruitfulness to their crops and so forth. And, but God is demonstrating here, Ra is not God. Ra was asleep when God was camping out, guarding his people in the pillar of fire. And when Ra awoke, when he was awakened the next day, he was awakened to the screams of his worshipers crying out to him in vain as God, the creator of the sun, 
drowns them in the waters that he, during the creation, separated from the dry land. God is making a mockery of their God, Ra. God is also making a mockery, I think, it seems to me, of of one of the legends of Egypt. There was a a, a legend about a, a pharaoh who dated about this time. His name was King Snofru, just before this time. King Snofru. And King Snofru grew bored one day, grew bored of being a king. And so he he asked his uh, chief priest, Jejamunk, for some ideas. And Jejamunk uh, uh, proposed that the king go for a little a little cruise on the lake uh, and uh, that he recruit as those who would row the boat uh, a team of beautiful women. So King Snowfru uh, thought that was a grand idea. He went out uh, and cruised around the lake and admiring the beautiful women who were rowing the boat and all was going well until one of the women lost the charm on her necklace. It, it somehow fell overboard. And she quit rowing. And she wasn't going any farther and she wasn't having, wasn't accepting any consolation until King Snowfru found her charm on the bottom of the lake. Snowfru doesn't know what to do, so he calls up Jejamunk, the, pro, the, uh, the priest, and he, he, he says, I got a problem. I got to find this charm. Jejamunk, according to the legend, splits open the lake. He divides it. And he, and he parts the waters and, and, and uh, he creates dry land at the bottom. And there, perched on a rock, was the charm. And uh, returned to the young lady and he restores the waters and they go on with their cruise. What a silly story. <laughs> pathetic. What a pathetic story. But look at the story God is writing. God parts the waters to spare his charm, his precious people, the people who are the apple of his eye. He sticks his finger in the eye of the Pharaoh. He says, you have your pathetic myths of, uh, of, of God's looking for Jewelry at the bottom of a lake. When the story I'm writing is a writing is is a story of love. You attacked my people. You kept them in bondage. And then you come after them in the desert in their vulnerable place pinned against the Red Sea. How dare you? And so I part the sea and provide dry land for my people who are precious to me. Brothers and sisters, in this pandemic, we're fighting a, an invisible enemy. And it, it does remind us of the spiritual forces that we are against. And, and even this pandemic, this invisible virus can be used by the devil to paralyze us in fear. 
And, and I want you to hear that your God is sovereign over invisible viruses and invisible spiritual forces. He's writing a story of love, protecting you, providing you promises like greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. No one, if you're, if you're in my hand, Jesus says, and, and my hand is doubly enclosed in the Father's hand, no one, no demon, no devil, no force can pluck you from it. Expect great things from God who is sovereign over human hearts. Expect great things from God who is sovereign over false gods and demons and invisible forces. And I want you to see that you must, you and I must expect great things from God because he is sovereign over the creation. That's the most obvious point of this story, isn't it? It's God dividing the sea, the Red Sea. See, he mentions it in verse 16. Uh, lift up your staff, Moses. And that staff, by the way, was uh, an, av- an avatar, you might say, of, of, of Moses. It's, a, it's, a, it's representative of God using Moses. Every time Moses raised his staff, he was representing the way God used him. A friend of mine always signs his letters to me, Stick because uh, he heard me reference Francis Schaeffer's sermon one time, God so used a stick of wood. If God can so use a stick of wood, he can use you and me. And so Moses lifts the staff and uh, stretch out your hand over the sea, Moses, and divide it so that the people may go forth on dry land. And that's the way it is recorded to God caused the waters to part and they stood like walls on the right hand and on the left. Now that's obviously a miracle. And, and so there are many people who, who, whenever they read a miracle in scripture, assume that since they, they assume that miracles don't happen, that things only happen in ways that we can clearly explain uh, from the way we ordinarily observe things to occur. And so they say, this couldn't have happened because it's a miracle. And so they provide, they, they, they supply some other explanations. One of the explanations is it's, that this is a mistranslation. It's not the Red Sea, they say. It is the Sea of Reeds. That is the literal translation of, of the Hebrew name, Yam Suf, Sea, Yam, Su, uh, Yam is Sea, and and Sufis reeds, and and, uh, and and they say, well, there are no reeds growing in the Red Sea. The reeds only grow uh, on the the uh, farther north toward toward Egypt. So uh, this can't be this this or, or, or the northern part of the of of um, the the region of Egypt, and 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 there were lakes there, more shallow lakes, and shallow tributaries where reeds could grow. So they say it's just a mistranslation. These people didn't really walk through a, a deep uh, sea like the one we know today as the Red Sea. They, they, they just they went through some shallow waters, maybe six inches deep. Others have said, no, though, in those days, the, the Red Sea was, was the, the water level was higher, and so it ran farther north. And that's where they crossed. They, they crossed over in one of those more shallow tributaries. 
uh, maybe even where it, it joined the smaller lakes, the the Menzala Lake and the and the Timsa and the Bitter Lakes uh, uh, farther north. Um, but that's strange, isn't it? That, that why would crossing a tributary or or, or plodding through shallow water? Why, why would why would Moses describe it as God caused the water to stand up like walls? These, this is a this technical reference. This is a wall of if, if it's construction terms. This is a walls for wall uh, describing the walls of a city. These are great walls. These are high walls. You know, there's a, an old uh, story about uh, a, a, a little country church that was, that one one uh, Sunday had a guest preacher. And the guest preacher was a fresh grad from, from seminary, a liberal theological seminary that taught him that the Bible wasn't literal and that miracles don't happen and, and that uh, the, the people of Israel didn't really cross the Red Sea. They crossed in six inches of water. And he was explaining that and... and uh, and that that the Israelites didn't cross the Red Sea; they crossed in six inches of water. And and uh, one of the parishioners said, "Glory, Hallelujah! What a miracle that God drowned all those Egyptians in six inches of water." <laughs> How can you explain that the wall stood up? How can you explain that that the, the, the thousands of chariots and horsemen were drowned in six inches of water in a trickling stream? No, you can't. This is can only be explained by the miraculous intervention of a wonder-working God, the the God who uh, who created the sea and 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 early in the creation days cre- uh, divided the waters from the dry land. He's reversing creation. He's he's recreating. The creation and the birth of a nation and birth of a of a people uh, through this uh, miracle, and then uh, and then he is reversing creation by causing these these waters to close in judgment over the horsemen and chariot chariots of Pharaoh. Well, what I want you to see, my dear friends, is that. That you have a God, you can expect great things from this God, because in this story, God is demonstrating that He that He moves heaven and earth to provide your salvation. What I want you to see is that this is the God who who moves heaven and earth to save you and me. How do I get that? God wasn't just saving the Israelites uh, as a nation. He was saving the line through which the Messiah would come. He is fulfilling his promise made to Adam and Eve that, that the serpent will strike at the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will crush the head of the devil. And the devil is constantly striking at the at the seed of Christ. And and he's fulfilling the promise he made to Abraham. Through you I will bring the seed that will be a salvation to that will be salvation to all the nations. And so when God saved the Israelites from the Egyptians, 
he was saving the line through which Jesus would come. And if he had not saved the line through which Jesus would come, you and I wouldn't be saved. So Jesus, so God is doing this for you and me. He is moving heaven and earth, creating dry land, causing the waters to stand like walls on either side, judging the Egyptians so that not just that he could bring Jesus to life, He was doing that so that he could bring Jesus to die for you and me. Brothers and sisters, we are in a a time of sacrifice, time of fear. Some of you may be ill. Some of you may have family members who are ill. There are those of you who are on the front lines every day in, in service industries or healthcare other essential jobs that put you in danger every day and you're afraid. Some of you have have loved ones who have underlying uh, health conditions. You're, you're, it's, it's, it's a terrifying time. And some of us might even die. Some of us might die as a result of 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 of, of, of putting ourselves in a place of service, contracting the disease, and dying. And I want you to understand first and foremost that we are only imitating, if that is the case, if that happens, we're only imitating what God has done for us. We may expect great things from God because we've already received great things from God. And what we have received has come to us through his unspeakable sacrifice. He moved heaven and earth in order to bring his son to die for us. And even if we do die in this life, He has made it so through the death of his son that we will not die eternally. We expect great things from God who has already demonstrated great self-sacrificial acts of love for us. And when we when we get that God before us, the God who is who is sovereign over hearts and sovereign over the creation, sovereign over false gods, and sovereignly gracious, graciously loving. When we get that God before us, we will attempt great things for him, great acts of love for him, for one another, for our neighbors. This this whole passage starts off in a curious way, doesn't it? Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people to go forward. Well, we don't have a recording of a, of a, of a prayer of Moses in which he's crying out to the Lord. It goes immediately from Moses' brave speech, um, 
In verse 13, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he'll work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. The next word is, and the Lord said, Moses, why are you crying to me? Tell the people to go, lift up your staff and go. Moses must have delivered this speech from the Lord and then turned and looked at the Red Sea and panicked. Turned back and looked at the Egyptians. He was immobilized in fear. So what psychologists call tonic immobility. It happens, you know, in active shooter scenarios where someone freezes like a deer in the headlights, cannot do anything out of out of utter panic. I think that's what's happening here with Moses. I think he's He's, he's paralyzed. He's shut down. He's frozen in fear. And he cannot practice the same faith that he is proposing to his people. So he, he, um, he has to, God has to wake him up. God has to, God has to yell at him. I think, I think Moses, I think Moses prayed that prayer. In silence, I mean, you, you know this, you, you know this phenomenon when you're so afraid, your thoughts are outracing your words. And we can pray that way. And, and, and Moses is, is, his heart is, 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 is crying out to God. How could you let us die like this? How, the Egyptians are coming. There's a wall of water on the other side of us. Hannah prayed like this in the Old Testament when she was barren. She was in the temple one day and Eli saw her. He thought she was drunk. Her lips were moving, but no words were coming out. It was her heart that was expressing its pain to the Lord. The Lord hears those, the Lord hears those prayers. Charles Spurgeon called them exclamatory prayers, and and so and so God has to to to, to jumpstart Moses, you know, you know, a skilled life life uh, saver, rest, uh, someone who's a, a first responder, somebody saving someone in a in a terrifying situation. Sometimes has to yell at them, hold the rope, jump, and God says, "Why are you crying to me? It's time to go." Now you say, no, that's not fair to him. Why is he beating up on Moses? It's the people. The people have already been saying, you know, why did you bring us out here to die? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? Let's go back there. Why didn't he yell at the people? Well, Moses is representative of, of Christ. He's the, he's the coming mediator. He's the one who stands between the people and God. Moses is, Moses is their pastor too. And God... God reveals his word, revealed his word to Moses, and Moses was to turn around and teach it to the people. Now, we know Moses, it wasn't because Moses was a better person, and here we're shown it's not because Moses has more faith. It's just his designated responsibility. Like a pastor who is supposed to spend his time seeking the Lord and listening to the Lord and studying his word so that he can relate it to the people. God holds the pastor responsible for leading his people in terrifying times. It's, it's my responsibility. And our pastors, it's our responsibility to, to say, okay, people, let's go. Let's follow the Lord. 
we are we may be fearful ourselves that God holds us accountable to say you look at me you listen to me and I want you to tell my people what I'm saying and I want you to tell them that tenderly and carefully remember when Moses lost his temper with the people at the rock the people deserved it but God says to Moses those are my people and you don't have the right to take my job. I'll deal with them. I will discipline them. I'll chastise them. I'll judge them if necessarily. I'll punish them. But that's not you. You're not going to accomplish my, my justice by your anger. You deal tenderly with them. So Moses lifts his staff, raises his hands. And he says, let's go. Takes the first step, God opens the water. Oh, look what happens. The result is faith. It's not that God, it's not that God conditioned his dividing the sea on the faith of the people. You know, if you just believe hard enough, I can make those waters, you can make those waters stand. No, the people had no faith. Moses had no faith to speak of before he just went to the Lord did simply what the Lord said go come to me lift up your hands God parted the waters and then in verse 30 the Lord saved Israel the Lord saved Israel the Lord saved in the Old Testament the same way he saves in the New Testament by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone so God saves his people in the Old Testament the same way he saved them in the New Testament. Saved people in the New Testament the same way he saved them in the Old Testament. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The, the children of Israel were led across on dry land not because of anything they had done, only because God divided the waters and took them over. When those dead bodies washed up on, on the shore, they could not conclude, we are so smart. We, we, we figured out a way to divide the waters. It was our faith that effected this miracle. Or aren't we, aren't we so wise for choosing the Lord? They knew they had been complaining on the other side. They want to go back to Egypt. God saved them by grace alone through faith alone. The Lord saved Israel. You say, well, he, yeah, yeah, he saved them. He saved them physically through this, through this miracle. But, but you, you, where do you get that he saved them through Christ alone? Well, can I remind you of of Jude five, that verse I regularly quote that says Jesus led them out of Egypt. Then we have uh, hence in the text itself, verse nineteen, the angel of God. Most believe that's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. We saw it again. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 2, the appearance to Moses. But uh, the Apostle Paul does, doesn't leave it uh, to doubt, doesn't leave it in question. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. He's talking about 
He's talking about this miracle. He's talking about the people of Israel going across the Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What does baptized mean there? It can't mean immersion. <laughs> only, only the Egyptians were immersed. <laughs> baptized means joined to. Baptism in the New Testament is a reference to union with Christ. So they were, they were joined to Moses. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Because they were with Moses, they were under the cloud. Because they were with Moses, they were, they were on dry land. And they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. That's what Paul says. Christ was with his people, and it was only by the people joining Moses, who was with Christ, that they were saved. Jesus was, Christ was with them in the cloud. Christ was with them in the pillar. Christ was with them in the rock. Christ was with them, leading them across the Red Sea. They were saved by grace through faith. You know, the New Testament calls what Jesus did for us an exodus. It refers to the exodus as, as the, the repeat of what Christ did for his Old Testament people. Jesus in Luke chapter 9 verse 31 refers to his own his own death as an exodus. It's the literal Greek word uh, used in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 3, Jesus is called the greater Moses. Jesus said in John chapter 5 verse 24, the one who receives my word, has crossed over from death to life. This story is all about Jesus. And this story is, is what is repeated in us. And, and, and Paul is making these, these references, this, these allusions to the sacraments being baptized into Moses and eating the same spiritual food, drinking the same spiritual drink, because he wants you to understand that those those sacraments that, that he graciously gives us in the church are, are physical touches by which he reminds us that, that I am saving you as literally as I did the Old Testament people of God. I am cleansing you of your sins. I am nourishing you and nurturing you for the way. I am the one who is getting a name for myself in the way I save you from all your enemies and all my enemies. What do we do with that? We attempt great things for God. We imitate what God has done for us and attempt the same kinds of works for others. I don't know what that's going to look like for you, for me, in coming weeks. But I do know this, 
that as we get the Lord Jesus squarely before our eyes and realize that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit moved heaven and earth at infinitely great sacrifice on their own parts to, to save us out of love, then we will find ourselves sacrificing for others out of love, whether it's self-quarantining, whether it's uh, sheltering in place, whether it's serving in, in some dangerous, more dangerous way. I don't know what it is, but I, I am eager to see what Jesus does in each of us. And I, I know you, Second Prez, you are, you are, you, you are gospel entrepreneurs always looking for ways to, to serve. And I can't wait to see what the Lord Jesus does through us. I recently read a, a story in the Washington Times about the people of Eam, England. It's in Derbyshire. And uh, the, the, the people of Eam, England, acted in an extraordinarily courageous and sacrificial way during the bubonic plague of the uh, late 17th century. For a hundred years or so, bubonic plague swept across Europe and the Middle East and eventually reached London in 1665. In 1665, in the winter of 1665, a man named George Vickers brought a bundle of uh, flea-infested blankets to Eam, his own village. He was a, a tailor's assistant. He was bringing these blankets to be repaired. They were flea infested, and that's the way the, the bubonic plague was originally being transmitted. Uh, flea bites. And uh, within a week, Mr. Vickers was dead. Panic spread through the village. They'd heard that the plague had reached London. And in, in six weeks, 29 people had died. There was a, a bit of relief uh, as uh, warmer weather came, but then the, then the disease mutated and became a, pul a pulmonary infection and spread very rapidly. The, 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 the little village church had recently received a, a, a new pastor. And it was a it was a man they didn't like and a man they didn't want, because he was an Anglican, representing the crown. And the pastor they had had was a Puritan named Thomas Stanley. The new pastor was William Mompesson. And uh, Mompesson was uh, was an Anglican. He'd been put there effectively by the king. The English Civil War had uh, concluded uh, five years before and. So all the Puritans were ejected from their pulpits. Thomas Stanley was was removed from his pulpit. He stayed in the village. He stayed with his people. He continued to live there. And they continued to look to him as an unofficial spiritual advisor. But Mompesson was their official pastor. Mompesson had an idea. He realized that, that Eam lay between... I was on a major trade route between Sheffield and Manchester. And he, he realized that if... If the disease spread to the tradesmen uh, who came through Eam, 
then it would infect thousands in those cities and spread like wildfire throughout throughout England. Mompesson concluded what only a man who had the love of Christ squarely before his eyes could conclude, and that was that that he and his people had to had to shelter in place. They had to self-quarantine. He knew what that would mean. It would mean the death of many in his village, but it would be the salvation of many more thousands. But he didn't have the influence. He couldn't say that to his people. Nobody in that town was going to listen to him. So he went to Thomas Stanley, the Puritan, and he told him about his plan, and Stanley was convinced that was that was the calling of the Lord too. So together they held a parish meeting and they asked their people voluntarily to, to stay in the village. They, they set up a mile cordon around the village, marked it out with stones, and on one stone, one boundary stone along the trade route, they, they had um, pockets in the stone where, that they filled up with vinegar and they, they believed that if they, they dropped their coins in there that they would be sterilized and and um, uh, for the purified, for the tradesmen who would bring their supplies to keep them fed and clothed. And they stayed there for 14 months. Mompesson uh, preached to them in, uh, outside, out in open air, every week for 14 months. The bodies began to pile up. 260 of the 800 villagers died. Uh, one woman um, buried her six children and her husband within the space of a month. It was horrific. I'll spare you the description that Mompesson makes of the of the scene and the smells in a in a letter. But after 14 months, the quarantine was lifted because. The spread of the disease had been arrested. Nobody, no one else was dying. And those, those outside cities, in them, no one got sick. The disease didn't spread. Only because of this heroic and loving sacrifice by the people of God. It's the kind of story that gets people's attention. It's, there's a reason it's been published in, the, in a national newspaper. It's, there's a reason that people, that people are trying to poke and prod at it to figure out what, what's the real story. This must be a myth. People don't act like this. Yes, they do. When Christ is their Savior, when God is their Savior... When they know a sovereign God who moved heaven and earth in order to get his son to us to sacrifice him so that we might live. They do crazy things like this. One of the descendants of the survivors uh, wrote a couple hundred years later. The immortal victors of Thermopylae and Marathon have no stronger claim to the admiration of succeeding generations than the villagers of Eam, who in a sublime, unparalleled resolution gave up their lives, yea, 
doomed themselves to pestilential death to save the surrounding country. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what the Lord may call you and me to, but I know it will not be an easy life. He he told us that from the beginning. Take up your cross and follow me. But I also know that you know what Jesus did for us. The Lord Jesus, John tells us, came and tabernacled among us. That's the literal language. He came and tempted among us. He came and sheltered among us. He lived with us. He stayed with us. He served us at great cost, infinite cost. He laid down his life for us that we might live. May the God of grace enable us to do the same that he might get a name for himself. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, please take your word and seal it, plant it deep in our hearts. Replace fear with courage. We pray that you would replace fear, self-preservation, with cruciform, cross-like love for you and for our neighbor. We believe, Lord Jesus, help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen.